Welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock with me, your host, Tony Michaelidis. We are part of Pantheon Media with some excellent music podcasts. Who have we got today? Let him tell you himself. Hello, I'm Derek Forbes and I was a bass player with Simple Minds for the first seven years when then I, I was moved on at that point. But I was back with them for another year and a half, four years, so I've been with them for 11 years. And uh, it was a really a wonderful part of my life. The second part was, was good, but it wasn't as good as the first part because we were all learning at that point. Uh, I did so many albums with them, which were, a lot of them were number one albums, and there was, there was a lot of success. Early stuff was very innovative for other bands. We could inspire other bands, but we were quite unique because we started off with two. <clears throat> the first album was written by the guitar player and the singer, and we wrote, we wrote some stuff in the studio as well when we were all together. And then we went to do the <clears throat> second album. And the second album, we never had a song. We had a couple of wee doodles on the guitar or the keyboards. And that was it. So we had to start from scratch. And from the second album, that's really where Simple Minds, as people know them, started. Because it was just a getting rid of everything we'd used to, to get us up to the point of getting a record deal for the first album. Uh, so worked with, we worked with a lot of fantastic people. John Leckie, who worked at Abbey Road, for years and years with Pink Floyd and individual Beatles, and he, he worked with Wings and people like that. He did the Stone Roses album as well, maybe a couple of albums with him, but he did the, um, magazine and people like that. He played with loads, loads of great bands, and still is doing that. Uh, so he he kind of mentored us into what recording was all about. And uh, so a few of us have went that, that way, that kind of technical way. It's not me. I can make a cup of tea and a bit of toast and cheese. <laughs> Wait, tomato surprise. I used to load it with Tabasco and they were all like, oh, make that toast and cheese. But, you know, but I, I, I get more into playing the instrument and stuff. But I love songwriting and I love doing it with them as well because what, normally what would happen, there was two ways of how songs came about. And it was... Uh, no, I'd have the bass and I'd play something and the drummer would play along or the drummer would just start and it was usually Brian McGee in the very early days Brian was there for the first five albums and as far as I'm concerned he was the best man for the job and still uh, so he'd start playing I would hear something in his head I always heard music in my head I would hear a bass line in my head I wouldn't ever pick it up usually and start unless I did just occasionally would pick it up and start playing something but I would hear something in, within the beat. And that's how lots of the songs came about. Either that Mick, McNeil, the keyboard player, and Charlie Butcher, the guitar player, they would get together and they would start to feed off each other. But it was usually Mick. Mick was a, a real big part in the songwriting. So basically it would come from these two areas or all together. We'd just go in a room and jam. And we'd have Jim Kerr sitting on top of a an Ampeg stack, my bass stack. He'd be sitting in that with a, a wee elf writing down things with a notebook and he would have his ghetto blast and, and we would just record everything. So there's a lot of magical stuff that he's probably still got. And he would go away 
uh, up to his room after the rehearsal and stay up all night, taking speed and all these funny things <laughs> overnight. And then we just stay right away. And, and the next day he'd come down, right, I've got an idea for that. That part's the chorus, that part's the, the middle eight. And you could put a solo in there or whatever it was. And, and you know, he would he would just pull it all together like a jigsaw. He was good at that. And lyrically then, he was re really, really good, I thought, in the, the early days. Well, right up till right up until I left, I think. He was still doing it. But when I went back the second time for the Apples album, that was getting a bit twee. <laughs> it wasn't it for me. Some of it was fantastic, but but it just seemed to be missing something, missing a bit of magic. But you kind of uh, left, didn't you, at, at, just after Don't You Forget About Me? I mean, that was kind of a real high point, wasn't it? I've always said this, I've never left the band. I get sacked, I get, I get thrown out, and the reason being... Which, I, to my detriment, I know, I know that uh, that it was my Yoko Ono moment. I had a girlfriend who was uh, pretty famous in her own her own right, and uh, I would take her around the world with me. I took her to America, I took her to Japan, I took her all over Europe. Uh, so she was always there. It was just that I didn't want anyone else. You know what I mean? I, I, this girlfriend, but I, so, but I was. Uh, uh, spreading the love, as it were, when she wasn't there, and she was spreading the love when I wasn't there. <laughs> so, uh, so I heard from other people, not to be quoted, but there you go, I've quoted it. Uh, so <laughs> that was it. It was just, and I had an argument with her, and uh, again to the newspapers because of who she was. Uh, she's uh, she was topless in the paper. <laughs> like that was I crashed into a, a lamppost and it was the band's the band's car and I'd wrecked the band's car so I was like ah, a lot of shouting and gnashing of teeth. Jim was wanting me out anyway. I, I know that he was wanting me out because I was getting a bit I was getting a lot of attention with her good or bad. I was being in the papers and what all that. He, I, I don't think he liked that. I do remember I, fondly those um those days though, because I was working back with you two back in the early eighties and there was Simple Minds, you two, Echo and the Bunny Men and the Alarm. And yeah. so I saw you guys like accidentally probably like 20 times, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I used to haw my bands in like you two and stuff into Billy Sloan and Colin Somerville and fourth and Clyde yeah. back in the days. It was a great education for me growing up because it was very exciting because I've always been a fan of like guitar bands, so to speak, um, yeah. and the live work and the from the small clubs right through and things. Um you get heralded as uh, the, the greatest bass player on earth. I've been reading, you know, from, from all publications and things, which is quite flattering. So, what are you, um, what are you up to now, then, Derek? I'm, uh, well, I've, I've written a book. This book here, but I don't know if you've seen it. A very book, simple but... mind, excellent. And that title uh, came from Simple Mind. <laughs> oh, very simple mind. No, it was Paul McCartney came up with that because I met him in. Uh, Air Studios, Charlie Burchill and I went up during the New Gold Dream era. Brilliant. In fact, all over the, we were all over at the was HMV or something outside uh, outside the studio and there was big, massive, big window display and it was all us, just some single photos of us. <laughs> we were all massive and it was right outside the studio and then when I met Paul in there, uh, Linda came in and said, uh, would you like to come and meet Paul? So Charlie and I were like, all right, no problem. <laughs> We were in Watson, there was uh, Mike McGee, his brother Mike McCartney, there was uh, George Martin, 
there was Stella and Mary, and I don't know if young James would have been there as well, his family. Uh, but I think who else was in there? Your man at uh, Electric Light, Jeff Lynn. He was in there as well. I think he was helping production with that, along with George Martin. Uh, and the, it was just fantastic for me. And I was uh, shaking. And Paul says, why are you shaking? I says, because you're the reason I do this. Because <laughs> yeah. I've been older. So died now, right enough. Elizabeth, she's gone. But uh, all her friends used to be in the room. And they're, my brother and I's room, because we were younger, obviously, at that point. The two years were there, and my sister had a room herself. And uh, she had all her pals in. And they were all playing Beatles records. So I was affected by that straight away. This is the very early days of the Beatles. I had a Beatles pass, and it said, it said on it, uh, it was a guy called Tim Hudson who did the 1964 tour of the Beatles of America and uh, part of the press. And uh, he gave me one. It was a, it was a yeah, facsimile of it, or, or, or whatever it was, a wee printout of this card. It was on card. So I showed it to Paul, says, could you sign that? And he went, oh, Tony Barrow and all that, because Tony Barrow had signed the original one, the photocopy thing. So he said, all the best, Paul McCartney, all the best to a very simple mind. And that's why I call that a very simple mind. And I worked in with the uh, simple minds. We worked in Abbey Road for two weeks in the first album. But I went worked there for six months with propaganda. So we were in there, and I used to see them all. I was going out to clubs with Michael Mertens, uh, the main man out of, or one of the main men out of propaganda. And we would go down to Stingfellows. But besides Stingfellows, there was a club called, not a club, a cocktail bar called Lennon's. And it was Cynthia Lennon's, and we'd meet Cynthia every every night. We'd be down there every night. And I was sitting at the bar, and there was a girl in a real a spark, sparkly golden dress. And I says, do you come here often? Just for a joke. And she went, we started talking, and then I says, do you sing yourself? Uh, no, I never said do you sing yourself. I said, you in music yourself? So my dad is, and I says, oh, who's your dad? And she went, Ringo Starr. I went, oh, God. It was Lee Starkey. I says, do you sing? She says, no, it doesn't run in the family. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was an easy answer, so it was quite good. But, uh, that was then. That was going on to another thing. That was propaganda. It was in, in between Simple Minds. I was there seven years as well. You were in the alarm for a while as well. Uh, aye, aye, for one week. Oh. <laughs> I, I worked with Mike Pierce a lot. It was with him in the big country. Mike was the singer of big country yeah. for three months. I had Mike on here a few a few weeks, well, a few months ago. Yeah. Mike's an old friend. He's a good lad. He's, he's, he's fought with, you know, obviously his cancer and stuff. He's done amazing over the years. Really nice guy. You've been listening to Derek Forbes, former bass player with Simple Minds, amongst a bunch of other things along the way. We'll be back with more from Derek right after this. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Do you have some real special moments? Obviously, like, I mean, from musician to walk into Abbey Road, you don't need to answer that one. Um, but, you know, other things, people that you met that, that you know, became like, uh, almost like mentors as much as anything. Well, one one album we did, and it was a song called Hunt on the Hunted. Herbie Hancock, that's wild, I couldn't remember that. I was having a senior moment there. We used to call him his herbal remedy, and he played a solo on this track, and it was just wonderful. And he was doing all the bends because he invented that thing. It bends the, the notes of the keyboard. And he played an incredible so I mean, in fact he played a lot of solos that we just that was the one we kept, but there was loads of wonderful stuff. Uh that was good meeting him. Uh it was good working with Steve Hillies as well. When he produced because Steve was like one of us, he was just a, a musician and he couldn't say no. So we had we had two albums worth of songs recorded and the record company going. It's not a double album. You need to, you know, we say, oh, we'll, we'll tell you what, we'll split it into two albums because we couldn't decide what, what to keep and what to throw away. So that was good with him. Working with, with Steve is just a, a genius. He'd have a calculator out working at timings and all that while we were playing. What's the tempo of that? And he'd be, he'd be doing some computation on a computer, on a, a wee calculator. Right, okay, that's that. Right, and setting up echoes. And I'm looking here because I've got all this stuff in front of me. But you know to find out what the the proper setting for the echo or, or reverb or whatever would be, he would work it out on his computer for on his computer his calculator first. Uh, a few funny moments when we were working in America and we had a day off, and the producer, not the producer, the the promoter, said, "Would you like to go and see Return to Forever with Stanley Clark, Lenny White?" Uh, Chick Corea and uh, Al Di Viola, just wonderful. Return to Forever, the band. 
So we are there sitting there, and a couple of rows down, there's a guy going like this, you know, he's, he's weights, his head's gone from side to side, he's got dreadlocks on, we're going, that's Stevie Wonder. And it was, it was Stevie Wonder. So we went, we got invited back to the after show, and we're in there, drinking away, and as per normal, you have to go to the toilet every now and again once you've had a, a good scoop. So I said, so I went to the toilet, and I went to the, not the one, the, front, the urinal at the, the wall, the, the next one, so I was there. And at the corner of my eye, I seen someone coming from back, you know, from behind me, but someone was leading them in. And it was at Stevie Wonder. And Stevie comes up with people. I says, hi, Stevie. Uh, I was, uh, Pete Wall sends his regards because, uh, you know, he was working with us in Elton. He said, do you like her song, uh, what was it, Promise You a Miracle? And he went, yeah, yeah. And he turned around to me and he pissed all over my trousers. That's that's God's truth, basically. Salt me. But you're not going to forget that, are you? No, no, no. You got to look on the positive side. At least it didn't go on the floor. Ah, exactly. (laughs) And another time we were playing in America in Pasadena, and we we played this theatre, and it was a great gig. It was brilliant. The band on fire at that time. I mean, we, we could really put on a good show. Well, you saw us as well. So Absolutely. We were, it was after the show, and I came out of the dressing room. There was a, a kind of wee ant, it was not an ante room, I think it was like a fire escape, and there was a fire escape door there. And uh, so I came out with a drum roadie, and then the, door, the fire escape door opened, and this man came in, with a, he was tiny, and he had a wee purple suit on. And he says, Oh, wee man, you can't, you can't come in here, the band are getting dressed. And he just opened the door again. It was Prince. Oh. It was Plung Prince. <laughs> but it, to be fair, he wasn't that big then. Well, he was only about three foot two, but it, you know what I mean? It wasn't that famous yet. There's loads of stories, but they're in the book. So when's the book out, Derek? It's, it's out now. I think it was November it came out. I may be wrong, because I'm, I'm a musician. You shouldn't ask me these things. <laughs> Bearing in mind the, the kind of era that you came out of, you know, I mean, I always think that that period through the 70s and the 80s and stuff, you know, before like streaming came in and stuff, was a really exciting thing because you bands of your era and stuff, you built up a fan base, didn't you, through playing and playing and playing and just getting, you know, to larger venues and more fans. They go out and buy your records, you have hits, you get to tour the world and stuff. Didn't Bruce Finley manage you? You had like a, a a bunch of people around you that were music people rather than, dare I say, accountants and lawyers nowadays. Yeah, well, we had a lawyer there with Robert. He was uh, with uh, Bruce, Robert the Bruce. That's, that was our people. Um, but Robert worked at uh, Arista Records and he was a lawyer in there. And everybody was turning simple minds down. and said, no, it's not for us, it's not for us. And then he says, there's something in this. There's got to be something in this. This band, is... he said, I'll go Got to see them. So Robert went up, seen the band. He was invited up, and uh, he went back down to Charles Levison, who was the manager director of Arista Records. He says, "You need to sign them. You have to sign them." So it was Robert that actually swung the deal for us. Oh, Bruce was brilliant. Bruce was fantastic. He walk into a room, the whole room would light up. I mean, even if we were all down, we all, the gig was bad, and we were all having a post mortem. He'd come in, and we'd be laughing in seconds. It was just. So it's such a character. Because we were a big family. It was just oh. when Petty he's come in, it's just stupid. It's interesting you say that nobody wants to sign you. Well, nobody wants to sign you too. 
Um, I mean, I don't even know how they persisted that long with getting so many rejections. You know, I've got an RSO rejection letter here in my file here, you know, saying, well, we're not really, you know, good luck with everything, but it's not really for us. Mind you, there's the guy from Decca that turned down the Beatles, said uh, he thought guitar music was over. Do you know what Robert White said, uh, let me hear, he's got, a, he's got a recording of the Beatles, one of their demos that they were trying to get a deal with, and see when you listen to it, it doesn't sound like them. Yeah. Martin was a genius there. George Martin was fantastic. He got him out in the, maybe, I think it wasn't elocution lessons or that because it was still liver puddling uh, twang to their, to their voices, but it wasn't there in the first thing. They must have been trying too hard to sing like the songs they were, they were playing with them in Hamburg and stuff. They must have been imitating. You know, you, you try and sing like someone else you probably know that anyway yeah it's amazing though you just last week on the 9th of feb i mean it was the 60th anniversary of the beatles on the ed sullivan show and you know springsteen saw that and tom petty saw that and that's what made them pick up instruments and want to be musicians you know because you see this coming on and it's like it's like a culture you know i mean everybody bought into it they were kind of like the first boy band when you think of it in the 60s oh right but ringo got the most fan fan mail did he really Ringo got the most fan well, apparently, aye. When you think of it, I mean, they only lasted like six, seven, eight years, didn't you? And obviously, like, you know, the Yoko thing. But I I feel that that once Brian Epstein died, that was kind of the end of the Beatles because he kept it all together, didn't he? But they they were all under 20 when they they chucked it and stopped. There wasn't one of them 30 yet. Really? I think 37 or something was the oldest. Abbey Road with propaganda. Uh, Dave Gilmore was there and he said, Dave, could you do a solo on this, this track? I was standing talking to him, we were talking about aeroplanes and he'd just bought an island in Greece and he was putting an airstrip on it and he's he's bought a, I think it was a 16-seater plane that he's flying in and all that. And he's a, a real philanthropist, he gives money away all the time. But he was there and he played a guitar solo on one of my tracks. Do you find, looking back so, on your live appearances, do you find, is there a special, apart from obviously, you know, Glasgow, hometowns and stuff, is there a particular kind of country that you have fond memories of? You really enjoy touring America and stuff? Oh, I love, love America. I love Australia and America. I've got, I've actually got an American band, guys that are still there. I've not been with them for a few years now, but I did four years in a row and stayed in Philadelphia and then got up and down the, the East Coast. There was a band supporting us called The Visible Targets, and they were from Seattle. So we were playing, I think it was Eagle Hippodrome, which is, I remember seeing Hendrix playing Eagle Hippodrome and stuff. We are playing in there. It was a great gig, and this band, The Visible Targets, were there. It was three girl sisters and a guy, but he was the drummer. But Mick Ronson was uh, producing them. And then uh, I met Mick after the show at the hotel, so I became a real, a real pal of Mick. And then I saw him again, my friend Ray McVeigh, who played with the professionals. Ray's his sister worked at Mainman in the offices. And Mick obviously was on that, and it was Mick's 40th birthday. So I met him there. Again, he says, oh, Ray said to me, do you want to go to this thing with Mick? I'll ask Tracy's sister. She said, yeah, he says, can Derek Forbes come in? Oh, Derek, yeah. And so he wanted me to be there. So I was there with him at that point. Lovely man, absolute gent. I was with him right to the end, and, and I was at the funeral and all that. Ray and I really? were there. Ray helped him get, you know, he was getting his album, Heaven to Hull, was a 
the last album we did. Did you see Mick with the uh, Spanish remarks? You see his Bowie years. The first thing I said to him, I said, because when the Ziggy tour, 1973, I think it was, was it? 71 yeah. or 73. Brother and I went, and it was a matinee show we seen, so I'd read in the papers, and the news, the musical papers, that they didn't do encores at the matinee shows. So I'm just like, all right. So at the very end of the show, and everybody's all waiting, eh, clapping, cheering, and cheering, and cheering, and John, John and I just said, right, okay, we'll go, because they're not going to come out. So we walked away down. We'll done about two or three blocks, and it was empty. The seats were empty at that point. And... Uh, we just heard the screaming behind us and then a, a limousine came through the, the crowd basically and then came down. So it was just them. The, the lights went to red and John and I were just at the, the junction and he stopped and Bowie was facing that way. No, Bowie's like this. And Ronald just put his head out behind him and, and looked at us and waved. And I'm saying, that's the first time a rock star ever looked at me. So that was that was just fate that I would get to know him. We, we were doing the second album with Simple Minds and Iggy was in the other studio down at Rockfield. Wow. And so Bowie was up there and Jim Kerr said to me, Dan, do you think you could go up? They call me Dan. Dan's my nickname. So, go, Dan, could you think you go up there and ask uh, Bowie if he, he'll play some sax in a track? He said, is he here or what? He says, ah, he's up in the other studio. All right. I says, okay. And then I went, well, I put my stage gear on. He went, yeah. So I put the stage here and I said, make up the make up one. And away I went, walked up, walked in, and I'm looking to the right was uh, to the right was uh, the control room, to the left was the games room, and there was a table tennis table there. And it had the fire glass in you know, it with a wire in it, so you could see through. And I, I seen there was people in there and I opened the door and staring right back at me was Bowie cross-legged on the far side of the table tennis table, and Iggy had his back to me. Cross-legged on the other thing. The two of them sitting on the tennis table. I says, hi, I'm Derek, uh, Derek for Simple Minds. We were working in the studio down, uh, down the road there. And I said, uh, Bowie said, can you sing? I says, well, I do the back vocals with a band and stuff. He says, well, because we're needing a chorus, a big chorus here. Would you come up? And I says, hi, hi, all right. And it's, I went, I went, he turned away and I turned and went, should I get this thing? And Bowie just went, yeah, as <laughs> well. So I went down <laughs> Come on, Bowie once is up there, they sing. And the story about that is just a lot of nonsense. So I had to write the truth in the book. But that's what happened. That's what actually happened. Went up and Jim was there. Jim and I were there with Patty Paladin, who was a worked with Johnny Thunders and stuff, she's a rock singer, whatever. Uh, Steve New from the Rich Kids, the Paul Glenn uh, Matlock, Ivan Kral from Pat Smith's band. We had James Williamson, one of the studios, he was producing it. And Bowie was giving him pelters. It was just funny. He was always doing things to annoy him. And Iggy's just laughing. You know, everybody was all laughing, going, this is mental. Well, Derek, it's uh, been great talking to you. I mean, thanks very much. Give us another mention for your book. Yes, there you go. It's A Very Simple Mind. It says on tour. It was meant to be there, but Derek Forbes, A Very Simple Mind on tour. And it's uh, lots and lots of stories from my time through through from the early days before he even got to Simple Minds, but lots about Simple Minds and wee bit about propaganda. Thank you so much for your time, Derek. No bother, man. It's good, it's good to speak to you. And there you have it, Mr Derek Forms, formerly of Simple Minds and lots of other people, and some great stories about David Bowie and uh, all the people that he met along the way. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael Evis. We'll be back next week. Subscribe, come back for more, give us a good review, and we'll all love you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.